Hello, and welcome to the USF Emergency Medicine Podcast. Hi guys, welcome to your last topic of pediatrics. Today I'm going to talk to you about pediatric arrest as well as pediatric airway. We both know that these two topics are usually the cause of needing new scrubs by most ER physicians. I'm going to focus on just, again, really important pointers and things to keep in mind. So let's start talking about SIDS. SIDS is the most common cause of sudden, unexpected death among infants. We're talking about those between the age of one month to one year old. 90% happen under the age of six months, and the majority happen between two to four months. We don't really know the cause of this, but there's multiple factors and multiple hypotheses out there, as well as multiple articles I looked at. And I think my favorite is the triple risk model, which kind of summarizes all the different variables that play into this. The first of this model being biological vulnerability. This summarizes that different factors predisposes one population of uh, over the other. So for example, SIDS is more common in boys over girls, it's more common in African Americans over white, and it's more common in those that have predisposing factors. So for example, the prolonged QT syndrome, increased level of serotonins, which are hypothesized to affect the sleep-wake cycle, as well as brain and heart abnormalities. The second factor looks at environmental stressors. So this is what mom did, whether she smokes or does any drugs, especially during pregnancy. There's one study actually in New Zealand too that showed a correlation between caffeine consumption and SIDS. Environmental stressors also look at secondhand smoke, which may have a link, as well as uh, different variables, like SIDS is more common in colder months, and it's more common in those who use uh, prone sleeping positions as opposed to supine. The last part of this model is the critical development period. So this involves the first six months of age, which is why we see SIDS more common in in, uh, this type of population, as well as interuterine development. So this is going to entail your exposure to drugs and chemicals during the first trimester of pregnancy. There's a link between SIDS and ALTI, which we now refer to as a brewery. And a brewery is an episode of apnea or a change in skin color or muscle tone, coughing, gagging, all of that. There's a hypothesis that say that breweries that happen during the day are caught and those uncorrected. And if they occur at night, then they result in SIDS. Another thing to talk about with SIDS too is the, the cardiac rhythm that we usually find these babies in. The most common is asystole. This usually makes up 87%. PEA makes up 8% and VFib makes about 4%. So switch gears a little bit and talk about brewery. So what if you have a case presentation of a brewery in the ED? Always consider admission with these kits and monitoring. But other five things you kind of want to keep in mind. Make sure you always get a bedside glucose. Always check an ECG for dysrhythmias or a prolonged UTC. And always consider a full septic workup, especially if your kid is less than two months old. And then test, consider testing for pertussis or RSV studies, especially in preemies. And then neuroimaging in patients with altered mental status or any sort of vocal neurological findings. All right, let's talk about your crashing neonate. So remember, this is your child that's less than 30 days old. Typical weight for these kids is between 3 to 4 kilograms. Always use your Braslow tape to determine the size of the child. One of my favorite mnemonics is the Misfits mnemonic. It kind of summarizes all the different factors that cause a neonate to crash. T being trauma, so this is your shaken baby syndrome, your abuse cases. You want to make sure you consider uh, intracranial hemorrhage in this. H is for heart disease, any of your cyanotic diseases especially. Endocrine, example thyroid versus adrenal causes. M is for metabolics, so hypoglycemia versus hyponatremia. 
I is for inborn errors of metabolism. S is for sepsis. F is for formula mishaps. This is when somebody overdilutes uh, formula. Intestinal catastrophes is I. T is for toxins, so any sort of home remedies that the parents are using. And S is for seizures. I think it's a really great mnemonic to keep in mind and run through when you have a crashing neonate and you're trying to figure out the cause of why they're crashing. Vital signs are very important in this age group. You want your systolic blood pressure to be greater than 60. You want your heart rate to be between 120 and 200. If it's greater than 220, then you want to consider SVT as a cause. Your respiratory rate should be between 30 to 60, and if your temperature is greater than 100.4, then you're thinking sepsis as a cause. I always consider glucose as another vital signs too. If it's less than 60, you want to treat with D10, normally 3 to 10 cc's per kilogram. So now that we covered vitals, we got to go through our ABCs, which we probably should have done before even vitals. So let's go ahead and talk about that. A is for airway, right? So if the kid is in respiratory distress, if they're not breathing, you want to consider intubating. B is for breathing. So normally with kids, you could do 100% by bag valve mask. If you can't oxygenate them, then you want to consider a cyanotic heart disease causing this. And then C is for circulation. So you want to make sure that you have access, which is primary in kids. If you can't get an IV, don't waste time on it. Always consider just doing an IO. You can always do a 10cc to 20cc bolus of IV fluids. If after 80cc's per kilogram of fluids and no change, then you want to consider starting a presser. For kits, we normally do dopamine, and we start that between 6 to 10 mcgs per kilogram. There's a really good MRAP article that talked about 60s and neonates. So what does that mean? It's the rule of 60. So if blood glucose is less than 60, that's bad. Fix it. If systolic blood pressure is less than 60, that's bad. Fix it. If respiratory rate is greater than 60, that's bad. Fix it. We all know that most reasons behind arrest in kids is due to respiratory decompensation. But let's talk about cardiac rhythm causing it. Let's talk about our tachycardia algorithm. This is just reviewing some pals for you. So the kid is tachycardic. Check for a pulse. If they don't have a pulse, then check for a rhythm. If they're in V-fib, V-tac, or tersades, you want to consider defibrillation. You want to start at 2 joules per kilogram for kits and then do CPR and epinephrine. Epi is going to be every 3 to 5 minutes and this is going to be via your IO or your IV. 0.01 milligram per kilogram is your dose here. Between cycles of epi, you want to increase your defib to 4 joules per kilogram. And then you can also consider doing amiodarone 5 mg per kg or consider even lidocaine, you could do 1 mg per kg. And if they have their sods, obviously you're going to do your magnesium. This is your high dose of 25 to 50 mg per kg. If they are in PEA or in asystole, then you want to do your CPR and your epi. If they have neurocomplex QRS, you want to consider SVT. If they're unstable, you cardiovert 0.5 to 1 joules per kg. And if they're stable, you want to try your vagal maneuvers first. And then your adenosine, just like you would do in an adult. This is 0.1 mg per kg with a max dose of 6, and then you can increase it. If they have a wide QRS, then you want to consider VTAC as a cause here. If it's unstable, you go ahead and cardiovert again, 0.5 to 1 joules per kg. And then if they're stable, then you could do amiodarone. You could do 5 mg per kg over 20 to 60 minutes, or you can even do propranamide, 15 mg per kg over 10 to 15 minutes. Remember that you start CPR in a kid with a heart rate less than 60, which is completely different than in adults. Let's switch gears and talk about the PEDS airway. 
Let's start talking about non-invasive measures first. So we have your heated high-flow nasal cannula here. In neonate, they receive a rate of 1 to 5 liters per minute. Infants receive a rate of 7 liters per minute. And children, 7 to 8 liters per minute. Adults usually max at 50 liters per minute. Your heated high flow is going to help you achieve decreased respiratory rate, your decreased work of breathing, and decreased accessory muscle use. This is really good in kids who have bronchiolitis and end up in the ICU. Your CPAP is another non-invasive mechanism. This is your constant positive airway pressure support. Typical pressure is between 5 to 10, and uh, the problem with this is usually it's pretty uncomfortable or it can have an air leak. You also have your BiPAP. This is your two level of positive airway pressure. Higher pressure uh, for inspiration, 2 to 25. Lower pressure for expiration, 2 to 20. So let's assume that this failed and now you need to intubate your kid. And you're going to use RSI. I broke this into seven different steps to keep things a little more organized. So the first is going to be your preparation. So this is you assessing the airway, getting your blade ready, and getting your tube ready too. Remember, you calculate the tube size in kits by using their age in years divided by 4 plus 4. Remember to subtract 0.5 if it's a cuff tube. Your next step is going to be pre-oxygenation. Normally, you need 2 to 3 minutes in spontaneously breathing kits or 1 to 2 minutes of bag valve mask at 100% O2 in apneic kits. Your third is going to be pre-medication. You can consider using atropine here to control your reflux vagal stimulation as well as your bradycardia that could be related to using your laryngoscope or saxonylcholine. Make sure to use this in kids usually less than one year old. You can also consider using lidocaine for transient increases in ICP. However, this has questionable uses. Conclusion of this is there's really no evidence to support using pre-medication in kids prior to RSI. Next is going to be your induction and paralysis. The most two common meds here are your ketamine and your etomidate. Don't use etomidate if you're thinking it's sepsis because it decreases your endogenous corticosteroid synthesis. And normally, keep in mind that ketamine has a positive chronotropic cardiac effect, so it's going to increase your blood pressure as well as your heart rate. As far as paralysis, you can use the same as you would use in adults, succinylcholine as well as racaronium. Keep in mind the adverse effect of succinylcholine, like hyperkalemia, so don't use it in your burn victims or muscle breakdown or anything of that sort. Your fifth is going to be your cricoid pressure. You can use a little bit here to see your airway, but make sure not to use much so you don't collapse your airway as well as your view. Also, if you're using a PD bougie here, make sure that the AT tube is at least greater than four. Six is going to be your ET placement and confirmation. Pretty much the same as adults. You want to use uh, capnography, you want to use entitle uh, and color change. After that, the last thing I like to think of is just kind of your rescue slash failed airway. So most common backup to use in kits is an LMA. Also keep in mind that the larger epiglottis in kits can fold back into the airway and as you're using an LMA and it can cause an obstruction above the glottic opening and an inefficient seal. You want to pull the LMA tip a little bit backwards and then advance slowly again. And then know your surgical air airway, which is a needle crike in kits. All right, now that we covered that, what makes a PD airway so much different than that of an adult and making using DL harder? A couple of different things here. Kits have a larger occiput, so consider using a shoulder roll uh, for smaller kits. The epiglottis is more floppy, it's more of an omega shape in kits, so you want to use either a miller or you can even use a mac and just lift the follicula here. Kits have a more anterior as well as superior layerings. 
So you want to look more anterior instead of just going more posterior. And then you also have a smaller view all in general. So whenever you're ready to put in your ET tube, make sure that you come from the side and not from the middle because you're completely going to obstruct your view. It's also a shorter airway as well too. So any sort of hyperextension can completely extubate your kid and hyperflexion can write mainstem. So consider using a C-collar if you're taking your kid for imaging or just for transport. So other causes of airway obstruction in kids. Let's talk about main things here. So epiglottitis, this is going to be your presentation of a febrile, toxic-appearing kid. It's going to be rapid onset, drooling, trismus, and respiratory distress. You can also have retropharyngeal abscess. This is a polymicrobial ideology. Your kid is going to have a sore throat, febrile, that muffled hot potato voice, neck stiffness, and this is usually in kids less than three years old. Croup is the most common cause of obstruction, and it usually peaks around two years age. This is your barking cough, your inspiratory strider, and most parents are going to say it gets worse at night and better with cold air. As a matter of fact, most parents would say, oh my god, my kid was so much worse at home before he came in. And that's because during transport, the kid was exposed to cold air and got better. Bacteria tracheitis, this is your acute onset, it has viral URI symptoms, your kid could be febrile, sometimes toxic appearing too. It's really hard to differentiate between croup and even epiglottitis. And then the last is aspirated foreign body. This is your sudden onset, no infection symptoms, and most common in toddlers. So that being said, let's talk about airway foreign bodies and what to do with that. So if you have a partial obstruction, you can take the kid to the OR and you can use HELOX to temporize in the meantime. If you have a full obstruction, you can try doing a chest thrust if they're less than one-year-old, or you could do an abdominal thrust if they're greater than one-year-old. If you have a full obstruction and loss of consciousness, try DL to visualize and remove the actual foreign object. If you can't ventilate, then try tracheal suction. EM Docs has an article using an ET tube and actually hooking it up to all su suction going as far as you can and try and remove that object. If you intubate, Try and advance the, the foreign body into the right main stem. If it worked, great, take them to the OR. Well, not you, but you know. And if it didn't work, then consider using a needle crike for a surgical airway. Sorry that this is a little bit longer. I just wanted to make sure we covered all of that. Thank you guys for listening, and I will talk to you next time.